Saturday. It's February 25th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in Rome. And if you're looking for drugs, you've come to the wrong place because all of the good drugs these days are apparently on the island of Manhattan. Who knew? Who knew? But if you look at this week's issue of Airmail, you will find out why, because there's Anna Claverino has put together a quite extensive map, right? Yeah. I mean, look, Michael, I've never really been a drug person. What about you? Do you care to comment? I, I can comment. No, not a, not a drug person. I think we're too big of control freaks for that. I don't want to start flying. Nobody wants to see me dance. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's just not really my thing. I think people would like to see you dance. You just wouldn't want to see yourself dancing under the influence. Like I would not to see myself dancing like that. You know what's even scarier is like looking at yourself in the mirror after the end of a long night out. I mean, I remember doing that in my 20s and being horrified. I can't even imagine what kind of hell I would encounter at this point in life. It's one of those great infographic maps, I think we could call it, where it just shows by neighborhood in New York City what drug is most popular and most in demand. Don't do drugs. Read about them instead. We have them all in the issue of Airmail this week. What does your drug of choice say about you? If you're taking Xanax, you probably live on the Upper East Side and you go see Dr. Analik for Botox and then have lunch at St. Ambrose. Done. But if you want a um, sort of cleaner experience, we have this week's episode of Morning Meeting because it's a great show. We've got uh, Malika Brown has the riveting story of one of the most elusive serial killers of the 70s who is alive and well and living in Paris, oddly. Then Stuart Heritage joins us from the UK with his very funny report of two children of some very famous people who just might be the ultimate bridezillas. Can you guess who those are? Ashley, we'll wait. Hold your answer. You'll wait. And finally, William Middleton, the author of a new book on Karl Lagerfeld, stops by to share some new details of Dirk Kaiser and the man behind, or is it beneath, the powdered wig. So it's a great show. And you don't need to go see your dealer for it. We've got it right here. (laughs) No dealer required. That's our new motto. No dealer required. 100% above board here on Morning Meeting. All right. On that note, moving on, let's talk about the issue in Paris. There is a killer roaming the streets at the moment, uh, and it's quite an intriguing story, well-known to a lot of our readers and listeners in Europe. He's not as commonly well-known as the States. We've got Malika Brown here to tell us all about the serpent, real name, Charles Sobraj, and why he is loose again. Welcome, Malika. Thank you. So Charles Sobraj's story started in the 1970s, or at least the part of it that intrigues all of us. Uh, He was on a decade-long killing spree that was alleged to take the lives of over 20 Western backpackers through Thailand, Malaysia, Nepal, India, Iran, Pakistan, Greece, Turkey, and Afghanistan. How did he first appear on your radar? So um, I was living in Nepal, in Kathmandu, in 2003. And I was there because my husband's work had taken us there with the British Embassy. The newspapers were always full of horrible killings and uh, news of Maoist kidnappings. And one day we opened the Himalayan Times and we saw this headline which said the serpent roaming freely around Tamil. Tamil being the tourist neighborhood where expatriates also used to hang out a lot. So that made a real change. And we, we were intrigued. Who was the serpent? The story was an old one that had been dredged up by a young Nepalese journalist who had recognized him from stories from the 70s. And apparently he had spotted him in the casino of the Yakin Yeti Hotel playing Baccarat. He was then arrested and thus began 20 years in jail for Charles Sobraj. 
I was a reporter then and I went along to the Kathmandu District Court where I walked straight in with no no issue and sat with him in the courthouse while he waited for the judge to tell him what his fate was. And I speak French, so I spoke French to him and that sort of broke the ice. But he's very, very seductive and charismatic. So in fact, you know, I didn't find him difficult to talk to at all. And so we sat there chatting away in French while everything else carried on in Nepalese around him and he had no idea what was going on. But he was very confident that he was going to get off. And how did he end up earning his nickname, The Serpent? As with everything around this man, nothing is really certain. Most people say that it's because he's managed to slither out of every jail that he's been imprisoned in. And most famously, he he escaped from Tihar Jail, a maximum security jail in Delhi in 97, I think it was. But actually, it's because I think he's such a shapeshifter. He just sort of relies on half-truths that he puts about about himself. He slithers between facts and fiction. He makes up things. He just loves to keep everybody wondering. And there's nothing he loves more than people discussing him. So he's always very happy to meet journalists and, you know, and interrupts and tells people, oh, yeah, no, it's not 20 people I'm accused of killing. It's 37. And I mean, he just shapeshifts, really. So I think the serpent is really because of that. Well, I was wondering if it was because he managed to slither out of his imprisonment more than once, it seems, right? That's right. That's right. Including out of Tihar jail in India. Can you tell us a bit about his talent for that as well? That story is allegedly that he drugged his prison guards that day when he had a um, birthday party for himself and either drugged his own birthday cake or gave him candy that put them all to sleep and he walked out. But it was a tactical escape because he knew there was um, extradition order for him to go to Thailand and be tried there where they might have executed him. So he went to Goa on the coast, another hippie hangout, and contrived to have himself rearrested in Goa two days later to go back to the Indian jail and sit out the statute of limitations. And in fact, the very popular restaurant where he was re-elected in Goa has a white, rather strange statue of him sitting handcuffed, drinking a beer on the balcony. And Sobraj loves this statue. He's very proud of it. So yeah, he, he likes to escape, but this one was a really tactical one. That's also, by the way, why he's a massive folk hero in India because they can't believe he escaped from this this huge jail. To back up for a moment, so when he, you mentioned the hippie trail, and again, it's the 70s, Europeans, Americans are backpacking through that part of uh, uh, the world. And he sort of basically sweet talks his way into their life and kills, is alleged to have killed many of these people. Was there a motive? Was it just a guy who, who you know wanted to terrorize young backpackers from the West? Or did he ever reveal why he, what was behind this? Some people think that he just hated the counterculture. These kind of rich kids, middle class rich kids who went on the hippie trail to Kathmandu. And in fact, there was a very, very famous book written about him by Richard Neville, who was an Australian journalist who really was the journalist of the counterculture, who had a magazine called Oz. And his theory was that Charles Sobradge, who had a terrible and traumatic upbringing that started in, in Vietnam, in, in war-torn Vietnam, and was kind of shunted between parents who didn't really want him, 
it was kind of exercising his revenge on that. Another theory is that he used to steal passports a lot. He slithers between aliases um, a lot. And the passport thing was all because he had never been able to have a French passport, despite being a French citizen. And he'd never been from anywhere. He, he'd always been other. Um, that's an interesting theory. But the theories never stop around Sobraj. And um, he is back in the news because he's now in Paris and he's telling his truth and he's very proud of the Netflix series, even though he says it's all nonsense. And he wants to sue Netflix and he wants to sue Nepal, which is an interesting idea. And he is telling his truth, which does sound kind of familiar, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, so he's, he's as you note in, in your story, he's 78 years old, alive <laughs> and well and living in Paris. Yeah. My friend's sister spotted him in a Vietnamese restaurant on Christmas Day because he was released on Christmas Eve. He went straight to his favorite Vietnamese restaurant in Chinatown where he lives. So he's very much out and about. Paris Match, the French celebrity magazine, has featured him several times. He's also majorly, he's on the media circuit in France, which is quite controversial. People are inviting him to come and talk on all these chat shows because of this book that has just come out. He's co-written with somebody. And people are like, you know, this is a con man. He's allegedly killed people. How can you invite him like a celebrity? But that's always been his his thing um, being talked about. He's also incredibly savvy with the media. There's been a Netflix series about his life recently. There have been several books published about him. What's what's coming down the pipeline? So there's this book, this autobiography, Moi le serpent, Me the serpent. And then that's going to be followed up by the same filmmaker who wrote it with him by a documentary next month in March released on Canal Plus and then in English on some, I don't know which channel. So, But there have been no fewer than 10 books, I think, about him, including by the heart surgeon who operated in him on him in Nepal in 2017. He is a product of the media, but he manipulates the media like he manipulates everyone and every single sort of situation. No one can get enough of him. He is really fascinating and enigmatic. When you spoke with him, I just, I just picture Clarice here in Silence of the Lambs. Does he have that kind of seductive quality where you're just sort of pulled in and even though you know someone could be a total psychopath? Absolutely. He's very charming. And I then was pregnant when he had another court appearance. And I went back three months later and felt very, very uncomfortable and then stopped going because actually I felt sort of vulnerable in a strange sort of way. But he is charming and he knew my name and he was, you know, asking for my business card. I didn't have one at the time, thank goodness. Yeah, he's disarming. Do we have a sense of how he's being treated in Paris? I mean, is, is this guy kind of like a local celebrity or an international celebrity of sorts? Is he enjoying his return to civil society? I think he's going to get bored if he doesn't get enough attention. But for now, he's firmly on the media circuit, thanks to this book. The biggest mystery to everybody is why he went back to Nepal in 2003. And at the time, and until very recently, it was reported that he was looking to set up a pashmina industry. Remember those, those cashmere scarves or a mineral water company? Well, it's it's odd because, you know, Nepal was in the, in the throes of a, a vicious civil war and it's not really the place you would go and start a mineral water company. But then now the story has changed again. And he firmly um, asserts to everybody that he was there for the CIA. 
um, because he's decided it's a better story. And he was selling something called red mercury, which if you Google it, you'll see it's basically snake oil and was there to help the CIA with a Pakistani terrorist he'd been in jail with. So he's just changing the story every time it, it, it's convenient. Well, Malika, it's a wonderful story. And thank you so much for sharing it with us more soon, I'm afraid, on this matter. <laughs> yeah. He's a psychopath. I mean, that's that's purely what he is, a narcissistic psychopath. Our favorite people to talk about. Thank you. All right, Michael, I'm into it. I, yeah, I know, but I just can't get this 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 image of Clarice out of my mind and listening to Malika, you know, it just does. But, you know, some people get paid to do face-to-face with serial killers and others do podcasts without doing drugs. So, you know, there you go. <laughs> Clean and sober podcasts over here on Morning News. <laughs> Straight edge podcast. <laughs> Although you might not know what listening to us talk today. We sound like we're, we're on hallucinogenics or something. Anyway, yeah, it's a great story. I think the next time we're in Paris, we've got to try to find this guy. Like, do you think he's going to be hanging out at the floor or is he more of a Domago character? To be determined. TBD. This guy looks like a criminal, but he's not the only badly behaved person we have in the issue this week. In fact, we have an entitled young 20-something couple. Who are the most entitled 20-somethings on the universe? This is a question we ask ourselves frequently, and Stuart Heritage, a writer at large for Airmail, may have identified them this week at long last. Stu is a journalist for The Guardian. He does some wonderful stories for us on the Royals, pop culture, English culture, and all sorts of things. And we're very happy to have him here. Welcome, Stu. It seems that you finally identified the purpose in life for Brooklyn Beckham and Nicola Peltz. Congratulations. Thank you. It took a really long time. It took (laughs) almost exactly as long as they've both been alive to figure out what they're for, because everyone just thought they were Nepo babies, but they're not. They are actually, it turns out, just designed to uh, infuriate wedding planners beyond all belief. Okay, take me back to this. So they hired three wedding planners to plan their wedding. Is that correct? They got married last year, last summer. It sounds like it was just a nightmare for everyone. They hired some wedding planners and that went wrong. So with six weeks to go, they hired a second set of wedding planners who were looking after the thing for nine days in total. Then they got fired and then a third wedding uh, set of wedding planners were uh, brought in. But Nelson Peltz, the billionaire chairman of Wendy's, sued the second set of wedding planners because they didn't return a deposit that was, I think, was like $150,000. And they've countersued him for damages, which means that now we get to read all of the text messages all of the emails that were going through all of them. And it just, it sounds like an absolute nightmare. Okay, Stu, look, I love how you call Nelson Peltz the chairman of Wendy's. He's got other things going on too. He manages $8.5 billion in assets. His portfolio also includes DuPont and the Bank of New York Mellon and some type of and a food conglomerate called Mandela's International. Okay, he's not just Wendy's, but why is this guy spending so much of his time and so many of his resources getting his revenge on wedding planners? It seems incredibly petty, no? Yes, it is. It is great. The emails between him and the wedding planners just get very hostile very quickly. Sort of, I think at one point, like either he or the, or the uh, wedding planners, they compare each other to their own parents. And it starts off very sort of friendly. And then he starts, he starts really, you know, he's, he's a billionaire. He's a billionaire burger boy. I think that's his, his specific, you know, job title. He starts just like cutting down their fee more and more and more. And then it's, he, sort of, he's, he sort of ghosts them at the end. They sort of email him to ask what's up. And he's, he, he says, you have to talk to my assistants now. And then shuts them off for good. And there's this incredible... It's, it's a recollection of a telephone call between him and one of the wedding, wedding planners he just 
fired where he phones them up and asks her if she's crying and she says no he says do you think it's funny that that i fired you why are you crying and she says i'm not i'm not and also you called me what's going on and then he puts the phone down it's crazed it's all available on the on the court website. I, if you've got time to read 180 pages of text messages, I recommend it. I read two pages of those text messages in your story, Stu, and I think I lost a few brain cells. Like it, it distresses me that when there's so much happening in the world, we care about this. Why do we care? <laughs> I think because I, I found myself, I fully, fully absorbed myself into it. And I think it's because weddings are just very stressful. And also it's fun to see very rich people be horrible to their staff, I think. Having read all of this stuff, the reason they get fired is because the guest list website was badly set up. And so there were some guests at this wedding who were just, there was no upper limit to the amount of plus ones that they could self-invite. So there were some people inviting six people to come along with them to this wedding. And that sort of caused Brooklyn and Nicola to have a meltdown, well, just Nicola, uh, to have a meltdown. And then Lewis Hamilton, the Formula One driver at one point, accidentally clicks yes on the RSVP website and then tells everyone he isn't coming. And the level of confusion that causes among, you know, five or six adults is just incredible. It's amazing, Stu. I mean, I loved this story because it's like, you know, it turns out that even the richest people in the universe can be completely derailed by petty problems, just like the rest of us. It's very comforting sometimes. It's really nice. I I, I think exactly the same. But I do, I, I feel Brooklyn Beckham comes out of it kind of, Kind of well, because he has maybe in this 180 pages of text messages, he maybe sort of sends three messages and they're all just for these absolutely not so ideas. Like he wants, he goes into like a, a lot of detail about the type of burgers that he wants served, mainly maybe because, you know, his, his father-in-law's the, the burger boy, the billionaire burger boy. Then later on, almost when everything's sort of reaching this really sort of high frequency crescendo of chaos, he sends a requests for, um, quote, guns that shoot nets in case any in, in case any sort of paparazzi drones come along. And that's kind of that's that's the level of his engagement throughout. He just seems like a very sort of amiable idiot, which I, I'm, <laughs> I quite enjoy. Can I prevail on you to do a dramatic reading of one of her texts? I have my favorite here. The one about asking for the RSVP list. I will do a completely dramatic reading for you. So <laughs> Nicola Peltz, the, the actress slash bride in this, asked for, a, a, I think it was a, a guest list. No, uh, an invite list. And the planner sent her something and she replies, this is not what I asked for. And then in all caps, I asked for our invite list. Invite, not RSVP. Can you manage to send that to me? No question mark. Very passive aggressive, but also incredibly angry. Ah. <sighs> Love conquers all. You know what? And Stu, I think in many ways, like maybe, you know, Brooklyn Beckham has not had a very successful career so far. He didn't make it really as a chef, a lot of other sort of failed enterprises, but maybe he has a career as a diplomat or at least a diplomat within his own family. We'll take that. I think so. I mean, uh, I do sort of feel for him. Even I was reading the, uh, the Vogue write-up of the actual wedding. Apparently the rabbi throughout kept referring to him by his father's name. He'd be just, I assume, because he's more famous. Which must be just, that's his whole life, isn't it? But on the plus side, he gets to just coast along on all this money that he didn't earn. But, on, you know, on the downside, everyone's always laying into him for not being as famous as his dad. That's his whole life. And, you know, like the wedding photos, like, Rabbi, would you like a photograph with the couple? No, no, I'd like uh, with David over here, please. Thank you very much. <laughs> and the guest list, the celebrity guest list was sort of quite heartbreaking as well, because they're people who play football with David Beckham and also other Spice Girls. It doesn't seem to be any of any of 
the couple's friends. It's just the, the famous friends of their parents. Fabulous. Well, Stu, can't wait to check back in with you when the divorce papers come through. And until then, wishing you a wonderful weekend. Great. I'll see you in six weeks. Thank you, Stu. Bye. <laughs> Talk about a basket of deplorables, Michael. Nobody's a winner here. <laughs> Nobody's a winner. And yet, I couldn't help but listening to Stu wondering, like, what if the serpent had RSVP'd for the wedding? Might have been there, you know? Seems like everybody else was. Yeah. All right. Well, actually, no, there was one person missing. Unfortunately, they were not able to resurrect Karl Lagerfeld from the dead to come back and attend the fantastical Pelt's wedding. But luckily, we've got William Middleton, a journalist formerly of Women's Wear Daily and Harper's Bazaar, has written an intriguing new book about Lagerfeld called Paradise Now. And he is here to explain what we were missing. And was there love in the Kaiser's life after all? To be determined. Welcome, William. Great. Thank you. Good to be here. You met Karl Lagerfeld when you were a reporter at Women's Wear Daily in the 90s. Tell us about your first impressions of him. Yeah, well, my first impressions were, it was in January 1995, and it was at the Chanel studio. And, you know, it was the first time we used to do these things at Women's Wear and W that were called previews. So it was the first time that any designer would show their collection to someone. And, and it was kind of a nervous making time because it's the first time that you show the designs for the new season. And the thing that I was struck by at Chanel is that there was so much activity. There were a dozen people in the studio. There was hair and makeup. There was a model and all of the people working there. And I was, I was amazed at how kind of calm Carl was at the center of all of this, you know, and he had this way of greeting you that made it seem as though everyone else sort of disappeared. He concentrated completely on the person that he was meeting, and you felt like the only thing that mattered was your conversation. And it's such a rare gift, I think. And so that was the first thing that really struck me, and that and that Carl was very much orchestrating this. And one of the things that season that was amazing is that um, it was primarily a black collection. And Carl said one of those things that, you know, actually doesn't make any sense, but it was genius. He said, it's not black in the sense of black, it's black in the sense of chic. And I was like, you know, that doesn't really mean anything, but that's amazing. And that went right onto the front page of uh, Women's Wear Daily with the photo of Carl. And, and it also happened to be the first time that Carl had started powdering his hair white. So it was kind of an, an important moment in his kind of stylistic evolution. So yeah, from the first impression, I felt that this was someone who was incredibly different from the image that we had. You know, the image, particularly at that point in the mid-90s, he was wearing, you know, dark Yoji Yamamoto suits. He was overweight. It was the fans, the sunglasses. And, you know, he had a public image that was pretty harsh. And from that first meeting, I just felt like this is someone who is not at all what that public image is. And the other thing that struck me about Carl from the beginning was that I felt like there were other designers who were more important in terms of fashion. But what was fascinating about Carl was his kind of complete connection with the culture of his time. He knew everything about everything that was going on in terms of cinema and music and literature and design. And I've since revised that a little now that I've done a lot of research on you know, how Carl was perceived in pure fashion terms in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s before he even joined Chanel. But the thing that I find super fascinating about Carl and what I wanted to do with this book was to make it a cultural biography of Carl, to tell the story of his life, but really focus on his connection with the culture of his time, because it's it's um, what I think was really distinctive about him as a designer. So tell us a little bit about your new book, 
Paradise Now. What's the story behind the title, first of all? Is it because, you know, now he is dead? Right. It comes from a quote from Carl. It was an interview that he gave to a cultural journalist here named Augustin Trapnar, and he was pushing him on the idea of posterity and kind of like, what it, how does he view his posterity? And Carl was like, you know, posterity, I don't care. I just don't care. He's like, I won't be here to take advantage of it. It's today that matters. Paradise Now. And the whole phrase was in French because the interview was in French. But the last two words, Paradise Now, were, were in English. And I was like, you know what? That's the title for the book because that's what Carl was. Carl was completely focused on the present. You know, he wasn't mired in the past. He knew a lot about history. He knew a lot about the history of the House of Chanel. He knew a lot about history in general. But he was someone, particularly when it came to his own life, who was focused only on what was happening right now. And so that's the idea of, of the title. We've seen and read a lot about Carl in the years following his death. What does your book do differently? What does it tell us that we haven't already discovered? We, I think we really get to Carl the man in this book. And it's not just, you know, a series of, you know, quips or it's not just the public image. The way I might put it is it's not just we get to Carl the man, but we get beyond and underneath that image, as you keep saying, which is Dirk Heiser, you know, which was this guy who like was so famous. He is, is, you know, in the silhouette with the, with the little ponytail. We, it was one of the few silhouettes in the world you would recognize instantaneously. It's like, it's like the Playboy bunny silhouette, but you have a very poignant, you know, speaking about getting underneath the image. I wonder if you could share with our listeners this very poignant letter you discovered that Carl wrote, which I think is a testament to your reporting and I think reveals, despite the image, there was actually, it seems to be a real sentimental side inside of him, right? Right. You mean the letter to his mother? Exactly. The way I found that is there was this auction, um, the series of auctions that took place at Sotheby's, and the first one was held in Monte Carlo, and there was a dinner the night before that was given by Princess Caroline, who was a good friend of Carl's. And and I went down for that dinner and I asked Sotheby's if I could review some of the objects that were in the auction because they seemed to be important biographically. And there was a scrapbook from 1954 and it was mislabeled as a work by Carl. And originally I sort of assumed that it was a work by Carl, but it was only later that I realized that it was actually his mother's work because the handwriting on the cover was not Carl's. It was in German and it was his mother's handwriting. And what this scrapbook had was probably a hundred pages of documents that are all around this Walmart prize that he won in December, 1954. Everyone has known about the Walmart prize. Everyone has known that that kind of launched Carl's career, but this has so much more detail than has ever been revealed. And one immediate piece of information that was completely new, there is this remarkable letter that he wrote on the night of the ceremony. When he got back to his hotel, he sat down and wrote an eight-page letter to his mother telling her everything about the event. And no one has ever seen this letter. Another interesting thing about this document for me is that Carl often suggested that you know, his mother was dismissive about his position as a designer. You know, she said something like, you know, it's good that you're not very ambitious, that all you want to do is be a fashion designer. And fine, perhaps she did say something like that, because it's true, it wasn't very prestigious to be a fashion designer at that point. But the fact that she put together this scrapbook, that she kept it with her in Hamburg, and then to Baden-Baden when she retired, then when she moved to Carl's apartment in Paris after her husband died, Carl's father. Then she moved to Carl's house in in Brittany, and it was with her when she died. So, you know, this is someone who was very proud of her son. 
you know, and so that's another revealing element. But there's so many elements of the way Carl tells the story of that night that are revealing, you know, and, and he's 21 years old. It's the biggest night of his life up to that point. And yes, it's a very uh, moving document. I've always been struck by how Carl was surrounded by people and surrounded by so much affection from friends and strangers alike. But ever since the death of Jacques de Bachet in 1989, it seems that he didn't have any real genuine love in his life, like romantic love. Did you come to that same conclusion or do you have any insights on that? Yeah, well, I think that Jacques de Bachet was the only kind of romantic, even though it was much more of a sentimental relationship than a physical one. But Jacques de Bachet was definitely the only kind of romantic relationship that he had in his life. But he did have a lot of friends, a lot of people he was very close to. One that comes to mind that sounds a little surprising in that it's he was his bodyguard, his chauffeur, his kind of right-hand man was Sebastian Jondeau. You know, it's a beautiful relationship that he had with Sebastian Jondeau that was not at all a romantic one. It was a professional one, and a, but a very kind of close friendship. And he, you know, chose him to be with him when he died. And that's quite meaningful. And then there's also the relationship with Choupette, you know, and I, to be honest with you, I was a little dreading doing research on Choupette because it sounds kind of ridiculous, right? The pampered cat and all of that. But then once I started looking at it and talking with people, like one interesting insight was Sylvia Venturini-Fendi, the designer of Fendi, who knew Carl from the time she was four or five years old. And she said that she would get texts from Carl with a little picture of Choupette that says, Choupette says bonjour, Choupette says bonne nuit. And she's like, you know, obviously it isn't Choupette saying goodnight, but, you know, it's Carl, but he had a hard time expressing his feelings. And this was a way of him to say, you know, you're in our little family. And so she felt like Choupette, you know, the relationship that he had with Choupette really allowed Carl warmth in his life. I think Carl did not have the same kind of relationship ever again that he had with Jacques de Bacher, but I think he had other relationships in his life that were significant in different ways. Thank you so much for this wonderful book and your insights on it. We can never get enough, Carl, and we appreciate you giving us this point of view. Terrific. Thank you very much for having me. I miss the black glasses. I miss the Diet Coke or the Coke Zero. I miss the fingerless gloves. Ugh, I miss all the male models he surrounded him with. Sebastian Jondeau. I miss Baptiste Jabaconi. Where's Baptiste these days? Is he making those music videos on the back of a moped? God, I love him. Hmm. Fashion moves on. We haven't even talked about Pharrell taking over Vuitton. If anyone can pick up the mantle of Virgil's work there and create an intriguing new legacy of his own, it will be Pharrell. He's incredibly talented. Yeah. All right, Michael. Well, before we go off into the weekend, do you have anything at all you can recommend to us? I do. It is a anniversary recommendation. I was reminded the other day that 40 years ago this month, The King of Comedy came out. And if you've never seen it, it's a good time. It's Martin Scorsese's, oh, how we call it, an ode to celebrity wannabes. It stars, of course, Robert De Niro playing a guy who has basically no talent, but he aspires to believe he is a great comedian named Rupert Pupkin. And uh, he becomes obsessed with a late night talk show host played by, of all people, Jerry Lewis. It's a fascinating portrait of celebrity culture and celebrity wannabes kind of some ways is more apt than ever to where we live. It's also hilarious. This is like De Niro before he became I don't know, a different version of De Niro. He was coming off of Raging Bull and Deer Hunter. It was doing his, it's a early 80s De Niro. You know, in some ways, the sociopath that he plays here is sort of 
not far from what he would have been with Travis Bickle. So it's the king of comedy. You can stream it on Disney Plus if you'd like to. You ever seen it, Ashley? No, I haven't. Now you're tempting me. Now I'm tempting you. I think you should watch it and we can discuss. Into it. Into it. All right. There's a great movie that Graydon Carter, our co-editor of Airmail, recommended to me. And I liked it so much, Michael, that while I was watching it, I was in my infrared sauna blanket and I stayed in too long and I almost fainted. It's called Argentina 1985. It's a legal drama produced and directed by a gentleman named Santiago Mitre. And it follows the 1985 trial in which the members of the military government who ruled Argentina under the, the horrific dictatorship are brought to justice. And it was a huge commercial success in Argentina. It won the Golden Globe this year for Best Foreign Picture. Yeah, it won the Golden Globe this year for Best Foreign foreign Picture. And what's great about it is it really focuses on the work of activists, really. Um, You know, young guys in their 20s who were led by uh, the prosecutors, Julio Cesar Estracera and Luis Moreno Ocampo. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. It was lovely to see you all, or at least be in your ear. (laughs) Michael, will you please read us out? I will will read us out and I will remind everyone that this uh, episode of Morning Meeting was produced drug-free. Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis. And our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram on Airmail Weekly. But we will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. So please, in the meantime, subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music or wherever you like to get your podcasts. But most of all, on behalf of Ashley and me, thank you again for joining us.